0: tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. We're here with Scott Sinclair, President and CEO of Sinclair Range. Scott, I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, this is great. This came through a referral through Tom Klassen, one of our past guests who spoke a lot about debt financing in early companies. And I did some quick research and I was like, yeah, let's have this conversation the best way for our guests before we dive into it, and I hope we go like far and wide because it looks like you've got so much that you've done in your career. But can you give us some background on yourself?
1: Absolutely. I should tell you something about Tom before I start, if you don't mind. Yeah, I, I also <laughs> started a podcast a couple of years ago called Martinis with Scott. It was on YouTube and we were trying to do it live. I don't know if you've ever tried doing live streaming, oh, wow. and Tom was my very first guest. And he came into my Bay Street office and we would have martinis they would ashley was making them for us and we had the most amazing one hour conversation live streamed and we captured 6 minutes of it and so <laughs> it was just a complete disaster oh man and so but and that was the first time i'd met tom and such a terrific guy and if anybody needs advice on debt or senior lending or factoring he's definitely the guy to go to and so i thank him I'm sure you're going to be listening, and I thank them for the referral. Some background. So Sinclair Range is my company. I've been in the corporate finance, investment banking, turnaround management business. And if you're a real investment banker out there, let's define it more as private company corporate finance rather than investment banking in the public market. So M&A, a lot of um, asset-based lending, restructuring. I did a bunch of venture capital placement. Back in the day, I've been doing that for 30 years. Originally, I was with what is now KPMG. I'm a, a chartered accountant, CPA, and I was in Toronto. And then I moved to their corporate finance business valuation group and became a business valuator and worked on the corporate finance side. And that was around 1990. In 94, I left and started merchant capital group in Ottawa, which grew into... know a decent sized mid-market corporate finance house which i sold 2005 somewhere in there when i turned 40 and took a couple of years off and started what is now the predecessor firm of sinclair range and sinclair range is a company that helps turn around businesses and we do that either by buying those businesses lending to those businesses or advising those businesses and We're in Canada, one of the few companies or only companies that will provide that service and step in as an interim executive, as a CRO, as a director. And we are the ones that do that. We're the only ones, I think, as a firm. There's lots of individuals out there, but we're probably one of the only firms that does not provide insolvency services. So if we're working for the business, and that business goes into a CCAA or notice of intention to file a proposal, which in Canada, if you have an international audience are, that'd be similar to like a chapter 11 or something similar in the US. You know, we're not the trustee, so we're not making all the money from that. So we'll use it as a tool, but we have to be successful as a going concern in turning around the business. So that's what we do for a living. And about two years ago, we started moving more into a principal role, which means that you started buying troubled businesses as well as advising them and the brand has been known for advising the businesses and you know helping them refinance and restructure and turn around so as a result we wholly own the stainless in ontario which is a manufacturer of stainless steel sinks we wholly own roofers world which is a designer manufacturer of tools for the roofing industry and both of those companies sell through similar distribution channels the ronas and Lowe's and Contracting distributors, intermediaries of the world. Equip Innovations, which is a tier one, tier two automotive manufacturer in Quebec, supplying platforms like Aston Martin and McLaren and Bell Helicopters, that sort of stuff. Interim Finance, which is a small high yield lender and the Sinclair Range side, of course, which is the corporate finance advisory side. I am president, we have a piece of Globex Extractions in Loveland, Colorado, which is a hemp processor making CBD products and related products. I always forget the list, but I think that's
0: all right now. It's pretty extensive, and I mean, if you were to, for myself and the finance geeks out there, me being one of them, hey, any numbers to quantify that? Because I mean, that's a lot, and then it, for me, it brings us- In aggregate,
1: we're a decent mid-market business. They're not large businesses. Okay. You know, even combined, we'd be in the mid-market territory.
0: Yeah. Well, still, I mean, it's amazing. And so I, I want to talk- We're over 200 employees together.
1: Yeah. I can put it to you that way.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a great way to quantify. All of the business I look, and I really like the idea of just you know the tangible physical product businesses made onshore. Still, I think that's a beautiful thing. So I was looking at and I was like, "Oh, wow!" And so there's so many places I want to go. One of them is talking about turnarounds, what you do, the process things there. The other is talking about you effectively being president to all these companies. What are the management systems you have in place? But before that, I want to go back to your formal training as an
1: accountant, and then breaking out of that to become an entrepreneur. How did that happen? I don't know how that happened. I think the, you know, I come from an entrepreneurial family in a sense. So I think you grow up with it. I don't think that you can underestimate the power of that. I've always been a bit of a risk taker and I've always been super curious. I think that's really, really important. And there was a lot of people in the accounting stream that were unhappy and could not see the value in it. And I was not one of those. I just thought, oh, wow, I get to jump into, I started my audit career actually in Ottawa not Toronto. The relevance of that is it's a much smaller market. And so you're not spending six months or nine months on the same large corporate uh, top 50 clients. Yeah. Yeah. You're jumping into small businesses and every three weeks right? Every four weeks. And so you get to drop into businesses and learn. If you open up your eyes, I mean, yes, you have to reconcile the cash and you have to tick and bop, as we would say back in our days, but you'd have an opportunity to talk to management, to see what was working, what was not working, you could learn. And so I loved it from that perspective. And, you know, that was a bit in my day. I don't want to talk for current accountants, but that was a bit of a unique mindset even back then. And so I can't tell you exactly, I don't think there was a aha moment. I don't think there was a, gee, I should take this life-changing risk sort of moment. I think I just always said, hey, I should go try that. I think curiosity would be the driver of it. That's what I came back
0: to, the curiosity. And it is interesting to, to be able to take a look under the hood of so many different businesses. And that brings me to the next question of, how have you been able to go in and step into so many diverse businesses? you know, something that is supplying, you know, second tier car parts, but also to names like McLaren and Bell helicopters. Where do you find comfort in knowing that you'll be able to manage that and turn that around?
1: Well, I try to do what I do well. And I try to get other people to do the things that I don't know anything about. Like every business has nuance, but every business is sort of the same, right? I mean, and so there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of mindset. I don't know if that's the right word that I'm looking for, but there's a lot of commonality in the way you need to think about things. Don't forget, I'm not taking a business that's doing a 6% EBITDA margin and trying to drive it to 9% EBITDA margin. That's not my world. I'm taking a business that's losing money, probably needs a balance sheet restructuring, probably has very little hope the way it's currently configured, and I'm taking it from that to whatever is profitable. And then I don't have anybody else's money, so I don't have to sell it. I could, I don't have to, I could just hang on to it, but that's my sweet spot. So I'm not, you know, to take it to the next level, you should probably be an industry expert or have spent time becoming at least competent in that industry, but I don't need to know how to make stainless steel sinks to get from here to there. Right on what I do best. Do I need local management team that can do that? Yeah, 100%. But I need to know how to hire those people and manage them.
0: And so is it then your sweet spot is understanding or effectively that value generation or the arbitrage there is being able to see a failing business and know how to restructure it, bring in the right capital structure and take it through those paces to bring it back to a point where it can be profitable again. And that's where you're generating value. That's your sweet spot.
1: Well, I think of it as there's both a balance sheet, which is what you just said, and a PL side. So some businesses, you know, if they're troubled, they all need to make more money. Well, most of them need to make more money. That's the p side. And many of them need to be restructured because it doesn't matter how much money you make, you're never going to get out of the problem that you're in on the balance sheet side. So there's really two independent issues. And sometimes you need both and sometimes you need one or the other, right? So you need to look at both in my world.
0: What about nuance? And you say that, I mean, every business works off a P&L and a balance sheet. So there's some common ground there. But when you speak about nuance, how do you start to find that nuance and learn that nuance?
1: I don't. I don't think there's, look at. I've worked in almost every industry in the world and that I, well, that's not true, but every industry that I can possibly think of with my limited imagination. And I just don't worry about the nuance. You need somebody who knows what they're doing in that industry. There's no doubt about that. Right. So I need the quote unquote right hand person to help me spend all day, every day with that. Okay. But, but from my perspective, you know, I ask questions, I'm curious, but the nuance never drives the turnaround. It's the big picture that drives the turnaround. It's the vision and the persuasion that drives the turnaround. In fact, one might argue it's the nuance that kills them to begin with because they get lost in the trees, so to speak. Interesting,
0: yeah. And so, with that, I listened to a previous interview you did. I think it was with Gowling's and
1: with David Cohen, probably. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And you touched a bit on due diligence, and and I started thinking about. What is that due diligence process for you and how do you start to evaluate those cultural cues of like, is this asset recoverable?
1: Well, I guess there's two answers for that. The one answer would be that at the end of the day, it's an M&A or a refinancing. So an M&A being a buy or a sell or a refinancing or a restructure. And the due diligence checklist is the same as anybody else's due diligence checklist, right? You're going to go through line on them by line on them you're going to dig into the details on receivables inventory fixed assets what have you and you're going to look at your ip and you're going to look at litigations and off balance sheet liabilities you're going to do all that stuff that every other accountant lawyer would do for due diligence but you're going to look at the results of that with a way different risk tolerance okay <laughs> like way different and then you're going to ask yourself can i structure my way out of that risk problem that i've identified here Because there's going to be litigation all over the place. There's going to be bad accounting, right? For some reason, troubled companies, they always get rid of the accountants first. Their reporting sucks. So you never really have good information. Therefore, you can't do reliable due diligence. You just can't do it. And so, right. So you look at it, you go about it the same way, but with a different risk tolerance. So that would be one way to answer that question. The other way would be what I really do is I don't get too stressed about the due diligence at all. What I think to myself is, is there a real business here? Is there a real business, right? And if there is, can I step into that real business and make a go of it while protecting my downside? Can I create myself some upside and protect my downside? And so I spent a lot more time thinking about that. And so I'll give you an example. I always tell people, and I was just saying this on a call before I joined you here for this podcast. I tell people, let's say you're a turnaround fellow and you look at a business that used to do $80 million and, you know, it doesn't matter if it's 800,000 or 8 million or 80 million or 800 million. It's just, there's an example. Okay. Used to do $80 million in revenue and was making a bunch of money. And then something happened and now they're doing 50 million in revenue and they're losing a bunch of money. Do I walk in and say to myself, wow it'd be great if I could get this company back to $80 million and it would be big a bunch of money. No, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. What you need to do is walk in and say, what's the worst case here? And the worst case is they're doing 50. This is probably like just a slam dunk of $40 million business, right? That's how bad it's going to get. How do I make money at $40 million and then build from there? And I don't even worry about the bill from there. How do I make money at $40 million? What do I need to change operationally, right? Deal with my expenses, improve my margins. And how do I impact my balance sheet? Because I'm never going to create enough value to pay everybody off under that scenario that I just outlined. So how do I restructure that balance sheet? And then how do I not go broke while I'm doing it? I mean, that's the big picture thought process from me. Those are two very different answers, but I hope that makes some sense for you.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. And it it gets my, you know, my original foray into business was as an analyst with doing M&A transactions internally for a big Fortune 5,000 company kind of thing. And I'd sit behind spreadsheets all the time, looking at different size assets, being, you know, different companies to buy. But it's interesting... I'm thinking through this now and how you look at it and say, okay, yeah. Okay. So who cares if they did 80 million before they're doing fifteen million? Can I get away with it at 40?
1: Now in that kind of mindset. In your job, you were worrying about whether that transaction was accretive. You were worried absolutely. about right? integration issues. Like I don't worry about any of that stuff. Yeah, Right. So it's yeah. a different approach.
0: And how much time do you, spend behind a a spreadsheet doing this or how do you put together the analysis for this
1: there's two tools in the industry that you just absolutely must have one is probably the spreadsheet you're referring to which i would call a rolling monthly projection model right which takes you out if the turnaround is three years or five years then you need a monthly projection model for three years or five years which um you know has an assumption line for every single line item on the financial statements and you project it out you layer in the financing you need to accomplish to do that and you see if it works right and the heart of doing that model as you would know from your spreadsheeting days is that every business boils down to three to five key assumptions right yeah i mean there's a million little assumptions but the entire substance of the profitability is driven by three to five key assumptions, right? Always 100% of the time. So you need to identify what those are and that's the essence of your turnaround plan, right? My direct materials to revenue percentage needs to be this and it's not, right? And if I look backwards when I was making money, it was. Now it's not, what do I do about that, right? And then your second tool is what they call a 13 week cash flow, which is just an in and out of cash on a weekly basis for 13 weeks, which is three months basically. And in a three month time frame, you see repetition patterns of ins and outs and timing within the month. And that tells you your burn rate. And that'll be way more accurate than that monthly model. The monthly model is going to tell you, Hey, you're running out of cash six months from now, but it's not going to help you next week. Right. And the monthly model. So we do that on all of it. Now, do I personally do it? Not so much anymore, unless I'm frustrated, but Okay. <laughs>
0: Unless you're not getting the answer, you're kind of looking for it.
1: Well, I also grew up building those models. So that's like my safe space, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've burned a lot of hours behind an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, maybe it's not burning. It's almost a video game at times. That's that's a, right.
1: It's almost meditative, right? You can o- o- open a bottle of wine and...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just sit it's, there until it, two in the morning. It makes me laugh. I, and I know I'm jumping around here, but you know, you doing your past podcasts with martinis and sitting down and having a drink. I think I love that idea. To me, it shows a lot of fun. But I'm sure some good conversations came out of that. What do you remember from that? And maybe it, if it takes us into a space of like, what have you learned if you were to reflect back on your business career? Sorry, in the podcast or in the business career? I tied two questions in there. I think one is with the past podcast, the fun you had there with you know having martinis and this kind of having drinks. I would imagine great conversations came, but then I'm also thinking from those conversations, is there a link to some of the most important lessons you've had in your career? Anything you can There really
1: is, yeah, and I learned those lessons in business, but I didn't know I learned those lessons until I started trying to do some content. Oh, wow, Because the content forces you to think, the point of my content, I'm not trying to sell anything, I'm trying to provide more help to a broader audience, right? And so for that, I need to explain some things. And for that, I need to understand why I do them. And I don't. It turned out I might have been the least self-reflective person on the face of the earth. Like I just wandered through my business career, you know, being the success or lack thereof that I was and without really ever thinking about it. And it's really odd. And then I got into the content production it was painful we were chatting a little bit before we got on air here that you know when you're up speaking at the conferences as a professional lunch and learns and this and that what are you really trying to do well you're trying to pick an arcane topic that you can be an expert on and you're trying to impress your professional peers that's what you're doing right and you don't even think about it you don't even think about that as being weird but it's not helping anybody. It's maybe helping junior professionals, but it's not helping a broader business audience. They don't want to hear that. Like they're not going to trip over that particular piece of valuation thinking It's just not going to happen. Right? So it forced me to really, what they say in the content world is to think about my pillars of my content, which means what do I really believe? Right. And that was a real journey for me. It opened up a lot, a real lot about what I believe and how I go about things and why.
0: Interesting. What are the things that you believe?
1: Well, to embrace change would be one way. I know that you had listed that you want to talk about some of my frameworks for approaching problems yeah. and turnarounds yeah, sure. and maybe that takes us into that one point. of them would be, and I think it's a similar answer is the reason I raise that, um, embracing change, you know, by definition, if what you're doing isn't working, you need to do something different. And you know, a hundred percent of the time when you walk into a troubled company, By the time I meet them, they're resistant to change. I've tried everything. I've tried everything, it doesn't work. And what I've learned is, one of the first things I do on a new mandate is I do what I call the listening tour. And I tell the employees, if you're old enough, about the Maxwell Smart cone of silence. I'll have a one-on-one, and I skip senior management. I skip middle management. I go to the people on the floor, so to speak, depending on the industry, but the line workers. And just bring them into an office for an hour and say, completely confidential, what's wrong with this business? And you get an answer. You get an answer every time, right? Now, it may not be right. You don't have to believe it. But if you talk to eight people in two days, that's four hours a day out of your life, you're going to get a lot of commonality of low-hanging fruit that you could change. And if you do that for a week, you've got your work plan for a turnaround for the next six months because they all know the answer. It's painfully obvious. So Ah, then the question is, and that's a universal truth that applies in every single business. Okay. And so now the question is why, why do they know the answer, but the sophisticated CEO, president, owner, manager, CFO, why don't they know the answer? And the answer to that, I believe is confirmation bias and confirmation bias. Do you know what that is?
0: Yeah, yeah, that works for
1: me, but we could explain it for your audience a little bit. But it's just the way the human brain works. People think that the human brain looks at facts and logic and evaluates them and then forms an opinion or makes a decision based on the input. When in fact, it's exactly the opposite. What a human brain does is it forms an opinion, it makes a decision, and then it seeks out facts that support that. And if they find facts, if the brain finds facts that are against that opinion or that decision, it either rationalizes it. It's like, uh, yeah, but you know, this is what was really going on there. Or in an extreme case, you literally get information blindness. Your brain literally can't see contrary facts. So if your confirmation bias is, Hey, I'm a decent leader and I've tried everything I humanly possibly can do to save this business. Do you think you're going to see what you didn't do? You're not, but everybody else can. Okay, And so embrace change, fight confirmation bias. And the way to do that is to forget about being in trouble, but just know that you need to change all the time. Continuous improvement, key success factors, like manage through objective, quantitative success factors, like I referenced direct materials to sales before. If they're going the wrong way, you're doing something wrong and you need to try different things, right? So that would be one. Positivity is another. I talked about a different risk profile for due diligence. Well, I mean, who would walk into a company that had 50% of the sales that it used to had, have, that wasn't paying its withholding taxes to the government, that had multiple lawsuits, supply chain had come to a halt, environmental issues, couldn't hire anybody because it had a terrible reputation. You looked at that with a normal business scarcity risk-adverse mindset, well, you're just gonna walk away. But if you don't look at it with a positivity mindset, what can I do about it? Then you're never gonna get into these deals and you're never going to profit from them. And then people say, well, what's positivity mean? Does that just mean being delusional? And I tried to put that into a formula that it means you face reality, but you're confident in your ability to deal with that reality and then you work your ass off. You know, So reality plus confidence, self-confidence plus hard work. And that's how I define positivity in that sense. So those would be two examples, but it's endless. Like I just have a million of those at this point. I don't want to take all your time, but.
0: No, no, it's great. It's fascinating for me because I definitely look at business and perhaps it's from training where you're looking at, yeah, we were always looking at a deal and we're like, is this a creative? What's it got to be to be a creative? No, it's not next one. Whereas your approach is, is coming in and, and taking a look at a, at a far different, you know, kind of a far different. Well,
1: approach. due diligence by definition is looking for red flags, yellow yeah. flags, red flags, things that don't reconcile, things that are inconsistent. that what you're looking for. Well, you look at a troubled company, I can tell you up front, hundred percent for certain, you're going to have a long list of those. So now what are you going to do?
0: Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Man, what an interesting space. What about culturally? And I would imagine when a company's failing. Management says they've tried everything. They're stuck in their ways. Those who are executing and actually creating the value, you know, on the floor perhaps can start to resign themselves to this is never gonna change. I'm just here because I need to be. You know, mid-managers are saying like I'm gonna retire soon, I don't care, or this is a crapshoot, we've tried everything. How do you break through that culture to get it to, you know, for a company to to see that turnaround?
1: It's not perhaps. It's 100 percent of the time. You know, mid-market and smaller businesses, troubled companies, the trouble comes from management, from leadership all the time. Okay. It's not some sort of, I almost feel stupid saying this post-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, I would say it almost never comes from some global event (laughs) that wipes everybody out. Right. It comes from leadership and leadership's inability to deal with whatever they had to deal with. And I'm not exempt from that, by the way. I don't say it as a negative. But it's a fact. They failed. And that creates what I call now losing momentum. And the reason I put it in that framing is because you mentioned my podcast called Winning Momentum, which is exactly what this point is all about. And negative and losing momentum when things are getting worse, when there's bad culture, when there's a bad feeling, when you wake up every morning and you know today is going to suck just as bad as yesterday, or maybe even a little more. What does that do? Well, it repels energy and it repels resources, okay, both human and financial, right? Yeah. People jump off the ship, the rats jump off the ship, right? Nobody wants to invest in you, people want out. And it just becomes this momentum of negativity that is going to kill you. That's going to kill that organization. And I always think to myself, well, what is a turnaround? Like who defines what a turnaround is? When is a company turned around and no longer troubled? It's always an interesting question to me as I sit around with a cigar at night, right? I'm thinking, when is this done? And what I've learned is everybody has a different definition. It doesn't have to be when you hit X in profitability, it doesn't have to be when the restructuring is done out of you know whatever formal process. It has to be whatever you define it to be as the turnaround leader. And other people aren't going to agree with you because they have their own definition. And those definitions are going to be different. But one thing that I, most important to me is the stopping that losing momentum and create winning momentum where you wake up every morning as an employee and you think, you know, today's a little better than yesterday. I got a little more energy. And every day gets a little bit better. And all of a sudden, you start attracting resources, both human and financial. Because even if you're still losing money, even if you're still troubled from a pure financial perspective, you're going in a better direction. And people like to jump on that train. And so you do that. You focus on small wins every day. And small wins accumulate to big wins. And the first thing you do is you start with Environmental because it costs you nothing and it changes culture. So environmental means, like every manufacturing company you walk into is trouble, for some reason has no sanitation anymore. They haven't cleaned the plant, they haven't cleaned the bathrooms, the the offices are a mess, right? Yeah. It costs you nothing, you clean all that stuff up, put a fresh coat of paint on, and people are like, whoa, something's changed around here. Small wins every day. If you talk to psychologists and you're dealing with a kid who's having trouble, a teenager, what do they tell them? They're like, get up and make your bed, like just accomplish something. Today. You know, this it's is no nice. different in our organization. Here to
0: quantify it, and some of these things you can't. But it's it's almost like that just one percent. You know, something that's a one percent a day, in or you know, just some movement in a positive direction is what starts to compound
1: and it that momentum. Yep, that's right. That's right. And you have to empower the people through that cultural change. And the reason for that is because it's not humanly possible. It is isn't a really small business, but in a, even a decent mid-market business, it's not humanly possible to go in and single-handedly change every system and habit routine within an organization to quote unquote, turn it around, right? People have to do that. And to do that, they have to care. And they have to take ownership in their business, and they have to be led, and it's the right way to do it. If you, I, I can tell you a story about that. I was doing a turnaround in the Toronto area. I won't give too much information because it was a client, and I don't want to disclose anything about their business. But they were a good mid-market business with a significant manufacturing process. And when I met them, their uh, fill rates, which were relevant to that industry, a fill rate is when you have a purchase order from a retail customer. Let's say, well, if you have a hundred orders and you ship 98% of them in full on time, well, that's a 98% fill rate, right? In that business, you need to have, I don't know, 95, 97% fill rate, or the the customers don't want you anymore because they have empty shelves. Well, this company had about a 32% fill rate. Like it was just not in good shape. They were losing millions and millions of dollars, even at the EBITDA level, for three, three and a half years before I met them. And one of the key things that we did Was we focused and their line was shutting down all the time, which is why they had, you know, their fill rates were terrible. And so, you know, the routine that was going on, the habit loop that was going on in that company was there was a trigger and the trigger is, well, the line shut down. We didn't produce what we were supposed to produce today. The line broke down. And then the routine for that, what the employees did is they went and hit. No one took responsibility because they didn't want to be beat up. They didn't want to be reprimanded by HR. They didn't want this to go on their record. They didn't want to be blamed. So they would just, you know, hide, right? And the reward was, well, they were there to live another day, right? So there's your habit loop. Yeah. yeah, Trigger, routine, reward. And so... What do we do about that? Well, we said, okay, I'm not going to one by one try and figure out what's going wrong. Like the 8 million things that are going wrong with these 200 people plus that are working in the back. A lot of them temp labor. Instead, we changed that habit loop, that routine, that system. And so we said, okay, same trigger. We didn't produce what we're supposed to produce today. Okay. New routine. The new routine is this is an opportunity for you, line employee, to tell us what happened why and how you personally would fix it and you will be rewarded for that and the reward is there was a scorecard on the wall you got a 25 dollar gift certificate it went into your hr file for participating all of a sudden the machine breaks down it was a positive not a negative right and think about why you might not produce what you're supposed to produce that day well One of the reasons could be materials handling. You didn't have the stuff that you were supposed to, (laughs) the inputs to that production line. I'm trying to tell you this without giving too much away. Or maintenance, the machine broke down. Or HR, the people didn't show up. Or quality, you made it, but it was all crap. And now you needed to scrap it, right? It could be any one of those things. So this flows throughout the organization. Well, I will tell you that we had probably 600 fixes in about three months. I would never come up with that on my own or anywhere close to that. And the system was so successful, it all kind of fell apart like four months in because we just couldn't keep up. But the business went from millions and millions and millions and millions negative to within 12 months, we were positive. And our fill rate went to 98%. And that was a primary driver of it.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool and really kind of, you know, what a great story. And what a, what a great industry to be in in the world of turnarounds. Because, I mean, it seems like that kind of alchemy is all of a sudden possible.
1: Well, and that's about your question was a long winded way to address that culture and empowering people and creating momentum.
0: Yeah. Yeah, nice. What about moving up from those on the line, those who are, you know, in case of manufacturing, actually manning the machines and putting the products together? Now we take it up to management and the metrics that matter, how do you identify those and how do you consistently measure them so that, uh, From your model,
1: from the model we talked about before those three to five key drivers of every business are all I care about. Really? Okay. That's when I talk about forgetting about the nuance, right? Yeah. And I say to make more money in a business, I always want you to focus first on contribution margin. Okay. Which breaks down into particularly manufacturing, which breaks down into direct materials as a percentage of sales direct labor as a percentage of sales, maybe some freight, maybe some sales commissions, right? Variable costs as percentage of sales, number one. Number two, fixed costs, right? And then lastly, revenue, not the other way around, which is what most existing management are trying to do. Okay, yeah. Okay, and then maybe some balance sheet assumptions,
0: like. I just want to point out something that I find so silly sometimes, like was talking with a couple of peers, one who runs a very successful marketing agency, and he's like, man, you got to be careful just going with the target of doubling revenue. He's like, we doubled our revenue and we made far less than we did the year before. You know, and it's just that kind of like, if you just look at the top line and it's so simple when you look at it, but also, you know, it can be so easily forgotten.
1: It's also really hard to grow revenue profitably,
0: right? And yeah. so
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you build those models, what you find, you would know this, I think, is that the most sensitive to profitability is your contribution margin. Right, like oh, if I change that one percent, it has a massive impact. Yeah, I would have to. Trails down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have to cut a lot out of my fixed expenses to get the same impact on net profit.
0: I'm jumping around from questions, so I think hopefully you're still enjoying this. But I think when you look at some of these, like contribution margin and some of the other metrics you look at, do you have kind of like rules of thumb for all businesses you're involved with, or do you come in and say, okay, in this industry, we should be around here? How do you look at these?
1: Yeah, I mean, we can do the traditional corporate finance investment banking background on peers and analyze, right? Analyze their, hey, what are the leaders in this industry doing, right? But honestly, the easiest thing for me to do is if you used to make money three years ago, and now you're not, what's changed, right? Got it. Right, and that's the way we do that normally. Okay.
0: And so everything comes back to your three to five main variables you're looking at. And how do you measure those and implement them regularly? Is it like do you sit down and have a regular weekly meeting with the team and, and that's the only thing that's spoken about? Or how does that
1: come about to make sure that it's... It depends on the culture and the organization, right? So at that company that I told you about where we changed the routines, I got... They used to have, which I see so often, they used to have a daily management meeting that would last two, three hours, and they would project a spreadsheet on the wall with 800 line items of everything that hasn't been done, and we've all agreed should be done, and those line items are allocated to specific senior managers, and then they're color-coded, and you go through one by one and explain why it wasn't done yesterday. And then for the rest of your afternoon, you go figure out why you're not doing it today. So you can explain that tomorrow morning at the next meeting. And then nobody ever does anything. Right. I know that sounds stupid, but I just see that so often. Right. So I actually get rid of most management meetings. I can't stand them. And I have a rule that if we have management meetings, they need to be 15 minutes and no longer because they should be about action. Right. So at that company in particular, we started what we called a morning ops meeting, which was everybody that was relevant to operating that day in a manufacturing environment, 15 minutes, what are you doing today and what help do you need from your teammate? And I don't want to hear one thing about what we screwed up yesterday. That's not what we're talking about. (laughs) What we're talking about is what help do I need from you today to do my job? Oh, I'm doing this for this customer. I need you to do that for me. Oh, cool. Okay. Right. Yeah. And that's it Round the table. Everybody participates. You're done. And then what we do is we have in all my companies, we have ongoing chats which we do on WhatsApp, where we deal with all the other crap. And then if I feel like we need to have a meeting, we have a meeting. But I try to turn meetings into a continuous chat, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But that's what I try to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And in a lot of the work I've done in the past, the companies I've been involved with and clients we've had, the world of meetings in itself is such a, perhaps a either a value suck or a value creator. I still haven't stumbled or a security upon a Yeah, that as well. But haven't stumbled or settled upon, even for our company, one set meeting structure or way to just eliminate waste and push forward with the best things possible. But it is nice to hear you using WhatsApp for just kind of back and forth because it's something we're doing too. And it is a nice way to kind of keep conversations
1: going to get progress. Yeah. You know, I do believe that I err too far in that direction. I think that I, from time to time, lose people because I don't give them the human connection of the hanging out and having real meetings, and because people want that, right? And I'm not good at that personally. Yeah, and so times
0: there's some value there.
1: Yeah, I'm great at dinners and drinks. We do that a lot for our firm, all the companies, and so I like doing that. But the whole set up a weekly Zoom meeting for an hour and a half, I just I'm not good at that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> what about you've had? a long career in this, in this space of turnarounds, and I've soon been through a number of market cycles and had to make a lot of decisions along the way. What's been the most valuable lesson you've learned or mistake you've made? Wow.
1: There's so many. I think there's a lot of overlap with what I talked about in terms of embracing change, looking at things with a positive frame, empowering people. Those are all lessons that I've learned along the way. One thing that I can certainly jump on is defining your own turnaround right what does it mean and you know i learned this my very first deal which i think was 1997 and i bought the control block of a tsx listed mining company and it was a dormant mine but it had a wholly owned subsidiary in the us and we were the second largest of graphite flake which is what i was really after and i had a ton of tax losses in canada and there were some cool side benefits the whole transaction but they owed a bunch of money to local northern ontario suppliers in the canadian corp which they had no hope of paying zero they were going to pay and i was new and i was young it was my first deal as a principal really maybe not quite but almost and i worked my butt off for like six months and I got these suppliers, 20 cents on the dollar in cash. So they got paid out something and I was, you know, patting myself on the back. I was quite proud of myself. But what I learned is, even though I'm not the one <laughs> that borrowed their money, I was still, I don't know if I can swear in your podcast, but yeah, I was still, doesn't matter. I was oh, still yeah. the asshole who didn't pay them all their money on time. Okay, yeah. And that I learned, that's human nature. That's always human nature. It doesn't matter what you do, you're still the asshole who didn't pay them all their money on time, even if you're not the guy that borrowed their money. And so their definition of success is way different than your definition of success and what you're trying to accomplish. If I'm working on a turnaround and we have to go through a receivership with a credit bit to clean up the balance sheet, to deal with whatever's going on, does that mean I'm a failure or was that my plan from day one? Right. And yeah. so... Another thing that I've learned is that in troubled companies, by definition, there's competing interests with different agendas. That's why the company's troubled. You're operating in scarcity by definition. So what are you going to do about that? Well, you need to focus on something. And what I've learned is to focus on the jobs, because if you focus on saving jobs, you always get the right answer, ethically speaking, at the end of the day. And so that in that example of, am I a failure for using the Insolvency Act, to deal with the problems of this company, yet coming out the other side, I've retained half the jobs or 75% of the jobs. That's how I think about it. So there's some random thoughts on things that I've learned.
0: That is an interesting one in the sense that I don't think a lot of people, at first blush, they could say that, oh, the company's gone bankrupt and whoever the helm is just, you know, I'm sure there's- Loser. Scurrying. Yeah. A loser. Yep. There's people or something, yep. but there's a, you know, there's a secondary and even a tertiary level of thinking when you look at it and say, no, there's a lot more at play here, but it is a sophisticated approach to business, right? Not a lot of people endeavor into the worlds that you are. So.
1: And they don't know what the plan was and they don't know what was real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very true. where to go? There's a lot. I wish we were having a beer. I think we'd have a lot of fun. What's your outlook coming through this pandemic? It's just been a pretty wild time. There's been a lot of winners even adjusted for inflation. There's been a lot, uh, not a lot, but some certainly some losers. What do you see coming from this? I've had a number of mixed opinions who have interesting kind of views into our economy. And I'm curious what your view is of what's potentially coming for us.
1: I think during the pandemic, back in the early days, I think it was definitely uncertain, but it was pretty easy to understand. And by the way, I was lucky because our businesses to a large extent, were in home improvements and cannabis and that was just pure luck that wasn't smarts right you was not running a store smoke some weed <laughs> i wasn't running a restaurant like yeah. I, so i was lucky that way and we were advising businesses that also were able to understand what their market was going to be good or bad or in the middle right um so at the beginning i had a lot of sympathy for this because it was so uncertain And I was educating or trying to preach to clients, including on my podcast, about how you operate in a world of scarcity and how you be a leader, which is you need to have really specific and limited priorities, right? And so I would tell anybody that wanted to listen to me, I have three priorities. This was at the beginning of the pandemic. And my priorities is, is number one, the financial health of my employees so that they can pay their rent and eat and feed their families, okay, which doesn't have to be on my tab. If we can't afford it, but we have to think about that and what government programs are available. What is the best decision that we have to make? Now, it turns out we laid nobody off during that period, but that was priority number one was to think about them. Priority number two was our employees' mental health, because I could just see that coming as a huge issue and the stress about, is this company going to shut down? Are we going to lay everybody off? What are we going to do? So we tried to over-communicate which has its pluses and minuses, but we tried to be communicative in that period. And then third was to leapfrog my competition because everybody's just gonna be paralyzed with fear. And so I bought Navani, the sink company, during the pandemic. I bought the automotive company during the pandemic. I took over the extraction hemp company during the pandemic, right? We sold another business leading into the pandemic. So we changed our company a lot during that time frame in relevance to that third priority. I don't remember what your question was now. I'm just talking, but <laughs> refresh my memory please.
0: Yeah, about the economy what you're seeing potentially coming uh, out what of what I'm saying. us back then, the beginning and, of the yeah, pandemic. yeah, and then
1: coming out of the pandemic, I think it's been a disaster. I think this whole supply chain thing is an unmitigated disaster. Now maybe that is more me because it hits our businesses directly, but I don't think so. I'm seeing that a lot, right? On the commodity side, just the absence of commodity, the absence of rubber for our automotive business, the absence of steel for our sink business, disruption in Asian supply for a bunch of reasons. So that's been terrible. And I won't bore you with the details of terrible, but it's compounding. You know, you have one problem leads into two problems, leads into four problems, Like right? It's a difficult situation. And I don't know that that's getting, I think it's getting fixed in terms of the availability of supply, but now you're just getting pricing issues. And I don't know when you're gonna air this, so what I'm talking about might be a little bit out of date because I think it changes really quickly, but you know, we publish in the US where inflation of what, 8.5%, I'm not sure what they're telling us in Canada, I think a little bit less, but that's just crap. I mean, that just depends on what you're doing. But you know, in some of my world, our input costs are up 100%, right? And I'm not able to pass that through necessarily, to customers, particularly on, well, I won't say which businesses, but I'm not able to pass that through to customers. And I talked about the most sensitive thing for profitability is contribution margin, get a little bit more on your direct margin of percentage. Well, if my input costs are doubling and I'm not passing that through, this sensitivity works in the negative way as well, right? And so the inflation side of this, I heard a stat, I haven't gone back to check it myself. I heard a stat that if you calculated inflation in the U.S. like they did in the 1970s before, during whenever, um, yeah, Carter came in, that it would already be calculated at 17%, like right now, right? And so I just think this is worse than we believe. And I think a lot of it is driven by energy policy. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I don't see administrations anywhere changing energy policy, which is driving probably half the inflation issue. So I'm worried is the answer to your question. And then all I need to do is convince myself that I'm in the trouble company business. So I shouldn't be worried. I should be opportunistic. But <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very, I think at a macro level, we're seeing things that, you know, I don't think we've ever seen before. I've had this conversation with a few different people, including a high-level economist. But do you ever remember the long-term capital management issue that yeah, happened in the for 90s? Sure. With the meltdown of the Russian ruble. And there was like mass concern that it could melt down the banking system. So all the banks had to bail out just this one hedge fund. Yep, Stuff like that is happening on a weekly basis now. And we just seem to be like, eh, (laughs) I don't know what to make of it.
1: But it's just just print some more money.
0: (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, it's just a fascinating situation to be in. And I don't know which way to go. I'm just very interested in hearing different perspectives about it. And I think if anything, what I would take from our conversation into this, it's probably going to end up being a a communication game and a planning for, you know, basically making sure you're shored up and you're not going to be overextended.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing I didn't mention, I mentioned the commodity side, the supply chain side, but also the labor market. Nobody can hire anybody, right? So when I took over... Ekip Innovations, the automotive company, is a new company, but I bought a business out of receivership, out of a CISP, a sales investment solicitation process. And we had 50 people in our little town in Quebec. And now we're at 90 to 100, somewhere in that range, sort of six months into this. And we had to hire all those people when nobody wanted to go to work. And so how do you do that? And we just had to do everything humanly possible in terms of raising our rates, paying sign-on bonuses, paying stay bonuses, referral bonuses. We dominated social media, right? I hired a marketing firm locally and I said, if you wake up in this town you want a job, you better see our name first. And it was effective, but it wasn't cheap, right? It wasn't cheap to get that done. And so I don't know what's going to change that anytime soon. I actually, I think I understand the supply chain problem. In the inflation problem, I don't fully understand the labor problem. And so I'm kind of it curious about that
0: Yeah, because it didn't feel that long ago where it was like there was too many workers and not enough work. And then all of a sudden just flipped on its head. So who knows? What are your thoughts about onshoring? And I ask this because this is from a geopolitical standpoint. We're seeing perhaps even changing the guard. And there's tensions between the US and China as who's taking that role. Do you think that onshoring is going to become a bigger thing? And what areas do you think that that will become like immediate or, you know, where would we see that sooner than later? What industry?
1: I think it's going to be a long-term trend in every industry from every perspective. I think there's been a, you know, I've worked in 27 countries in the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years, something like that. And so I think I have more of a global perspective on this, you know, and if you think about this in the U.S., I mean, what has this whole offshoring trend done is it's hollowed out middle America for the benefit of the East coast and a little bit of the West coast. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, that's yeah. effectively what you've done. Well, that can't continue indefinitely. Right. There has to be a reversal of that. You're going to see it in politics with populism, which you've already seen. And it's going to reverse. And so you've got that driving it. And I think that you have security, global relations driving it as well, as you already mentioned, and we saw it a lot during the pandemic, right? Pharmaceuticals, everything, chips, every industry that you can possibly think of, there's a risk there if you're not doing it domestically. If you're a company like the US and Canada, we can't obviously do everything ourselves at our size. But I believe in local manufacturing and a lot of the businesses that we buy are premise on that belief.
0: Yeah. I wholeheartedly believe in it too, because to me, it's the kind of thing that as soon as you can give people purpose and you can build something that, you know, you've got a a culture behind and your management team who's supporting the growth of, of people's lives. You know, it's so shocking to me that this has been allowed to happen. And I mean, you know, call it greed. There you go, right? Like the markets have, have where the money's going to go. But where do you think that the lowest hanging fruit is? And where's the biggest need for onshoring of materials? Like if we looked at luxury goods, that's not going to be it. But if you look no. at, I mean, steel manufacturing, is it Pharmaceuticals seems like an immediate one from a you know public safety standpoint.
1: Where else? Yeah, I think that's probably beyond my scope of expertise. I agree with you. I think the ones that are security driven, like pharmaceuticals, chip manufacturing, but you know, I don't know firsthand the investment and expertise required to get that done. So yeah, okay. So you don't even bother. Yeah, hard for me to say, and it's not particularly relevant to my world in the sense that I just try to keep my head down and do what I'm working on and see if I can make make some money from that. Right. So. but i do pay attention to things as best i can and i don't disagree with you yeah oh thank you (laughs) yeah right we just onshored a plastic tool that we make and we're saving how do i put that into math about 25 percent on a contribution margin by making that capital investment
0: well that's the top of the pnl you want to be at so that's yeah
1: Yeah, and it's not because our labor is cheap or anything like that it's not but we found an efficient manufacturer to outsource this to locally and we're avoiding all the tariffs that we used to have. A yeah, deal.
0: yeah, oh, very interesting. Well, hey, we're we're just pushing up on an hour here, and I want to be respectful of your time. But I am curious on a personal level: what do you read, and where do you kind of find your information? What keeps you
1: interested outside of turning around businesses? I don't. You mean news? Why don't you say what do I read? Is that what you mean?
0: Not news, like anything. I'm just curious
1: what 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 ticks do I consume head? for media? For entertainment, for media, for whatever. I don't even own a TV, so we don't have uh, entertainment club, going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I listen to podcasts, you know, and there's a couple that I'll listen to pretty much daily. I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I'm traveling all the time, so I always have earphones in. And so I listen to audiobooks. Before I learned about podcasts, I was consuming two or three books a week while I was traveling around, just had it playing in the background. I'm not saying I never read. I mean, I'm reading all the time. but. The opportunity for me to sit down with a book is, it just doesn't happen anymore. But I do write a lot. And, you know, to write, you need to research, read articles, and do that sort of thing. So that's pretty much how I roll.
0: Oh, nice. Nice. I just want to, you know, I've I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks as well. And one that comes to mind is Acid for the Children. And this was from the bassist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, his memoir. And so the reason why I bring it up is because I've never been a big music fan, and it was a stretch for me to bother listening to that. But I got into it. And then I went and listened to the like Chili Peppers' all-time best hits or whatever it was. And it changed my whole
1: perspective on their music. It was very,
0: very cool. It was a great experience to do that. Because Because you learned
1: about the creative process and the business behind it, I assume. Some of the business,
0: it was more the, the life stories, and you know, right. frankly, the, the amount of drugs they did, and the you know, yeah, the yeah. <laughs> different kind of, but you know, some of the traumas in life that they would put up with, or in this individual, right? And so it was just right. It comes out in the lyrics in a way that is is truly unique, and so it was a it was a cool combination of a memoir to actually listening. So I just actually finished that, so I thought I'd put it out there.
1: Yeah, I can't even think of the last book I was on, but
0: yeah, <laughs> huh. yeah. Well, hey, let's wrap this up. Winning momentum is your podcast. It you is got. On Sinclair Range, on your website, you've got a whole list of resources there as well as your consulting. What else, how can the listeners follow what you do and get in touch
1: if they need? You know what, the best place is the brand new website, thescottsinclair.com. So thescottsinclair.com. And it's not perfect yet, but it was released about a month ago. And so all of the content will be flowing through that. You can subscribe to everything there. And uh, I think that's the best way to go. Awesome. We'll put the Makes notes it simple. In that
0: put in the show notes and it's got to really appreciate Thank it. Thank you Thanks so much.
1: It. I appreciate it. Hey, it's been a great time. Enjoyed yeah. It.
0: Yeah. Right on. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of the insider's guide to finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the play store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.